Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. They wanted to share that they weren't eating at chain restaurants, and they wanted me to know that they had, you know, they were experiencing something that, that to them felt more genuine and more real. So it sort of started from a, a really good intention, but we, sh- we way overshot. Mm-hmm. We way overshot, yeah. We sort of lost ownership of that word. It became more of an indicator of the type of person uh, that was that was searching for that food. They turned into stereotypes. For those who love food, preparing it, eating it, making menu and travel plans around it. Talking about food is often a huge part of its enjoyment. What we say about what we've tried and where, and what makes a dish or restaurant memorable, it's a part of experiencing food and sharing it with others. Now, when it comes to the term authentic, particularly around ethnic cuisines, there's some stuff to unpack. Holly Fan is a St. Louis food writer and dining critic for St. Louis Magazine and Eater, as well as a trained chef who grew up here in St. Louis. She gave a TEDx St. Louis talk on the subject that's become an editor's pick uh, for TED Talks. And she's here today to talk with us about that and what we miss when we buy into the illusion of authentic food. Holly, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, Elaine. Thanks for having me. So I have you on this program because I saw through Instagram mm-hmm. that you were going to be doing this talk. It was done back in October. It's finally now been yeah. posted. Talk about the origin of the theme and title, which is the illusion of authentic food. Sure. I think that um, most of us believe that that the word authentic is is a very positive sort of you know descriptor of of what we want to believe is a representation sort of a true representation of a cuisine and and that would be great and i think that's that's sort of what it it was used for for a long time but recently i think in the past maybe 6 to 7 years that we sort of lost ownership of that word and instead of being a descriptor for a, a type of food, it became more of an indicator of the type of person uh, that, was, that was searching for that food. Mm-hmm. So it's something that, that sort of changed definition, but no one was keeping tabs on it. Okay. And, and it sort of it had a life of its own. Right. Yeah. So six to seven years ago. Yeah. What was happening at that time that got you thinking about this? Well, I think, um, and I, my fellow food writers uh, will have compassion for me in this. When Instagram sort of, you know, hit, and things like Yelp became very much a part of our fabric of our, you know, sort of the zeitgeist of food, there started to be a sort of elite, a, a way to sort of a bet elitism sort mm-hmm. of came around. And 
what was funny was what was used was this discovery or this ability to search out and be the first to to discover these these small independent uh, immigrant owned restaurants. I don't know exactly why that's what we you know we grabbed onto, but it it left a bad taste in my mouth, mm-hmm. and I would see it a lot. Um, and the more and more I saw it, the more I realized that it was really, it was a very skewed way to look at food. And it really took the power away from the restaurant and put it into the hands of, of someone projecting onto the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So the, the consumers? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So they were producing something in, in particular. Mm-hmm. Now, you're talking about this. Yeah. For, with the TEDx, yes, St. Louis, yes. So you've been thinking about the idea for a while. Mm-hmm. How did you get from that idea to what is now part of TEDx St. Louis? Yeah, well, TEDx uh, St. Louis is very they they don't make quick decisions. Um, I first started talking to them three years three years ago, over mm-hmm. three years ago, and we. I met with the I met with a few of the people um, that are facilitators, uh, license holders, and and they really wanted me to flesh this out for them. You know, they really wanted to make sure it was a cogent, uh, relevant topic that that made sense for this this community. And what happened was over COVID, it just sort of reinforced. Um, we it just sort of got. I don't want to. Oh, but this, it got worse, basically. Yeah. Um, and so it really was a great time to revisit this and to speak about this and and take a look at it from, I think, a different angle. Yeah. And is there a, an example that you can think of where, you know, not to, to incriminate or like point sure, fingers absolutely. at anyone, but is there some example that illustrates some of what you're talking about? Absolutely. Uh the thing about being um, a food writer is everyone wants to talk about food with you, and everyone is very excited. You know, people love food; they want to share their experiences. And what I started noticing was that what first was happening, and I think we all kind of felt this, was we sort of saw this odd gentrification um, of of the cuisines that we loved. Um, we started to see things like. You know, regional Chinese food was suddenly being, places were being opened by chains. Um, we started to see just sort of a an Americanization of a lot of cuisines. And there's really nothing wrong with that. Um, we also started to see people of different ethnicities exploring cuisines that were not their own. Okay. And, and there's... You know that is that's sort of the the job of a chef really is to explore and and sort of you know pull the best parts of of cuisine that they can. But when when all of this sort of happened at the same time, we wanted very much. I think forward thinking diners wanted very much to give the autonomy back to the restaurant owners, mm-hmm. back to these communities that that held these sort of food. You know this food culture is very important to them mm-hmm. as being part of the fabric of, of who they were. But they weren't speaking up. They weren't the ones that were that were saying, you know, we need to be called authentic. We need to be deemed authentic. Their food to them is authentic. Right. Um, it was when it was when we started to subjectively label 
you know, diners kind of decided what the parameters were, and they changed from person to person, and um, yeah, and they they sort of they sort of put it on to communities and right. on to chefs and on to different cuisines. So I definitely heard more and more people sort of voicing the same ideas about places they ate. Um, they wanted to share that they weren't eating at chain restaurants, and they wanted me to know that they had, you know, they were experiencing something that that to them felt more genuine and more real. So it sort of started from a, a really good intention, but we sh- we way overshot. Mm-hmm. We way overshot. Yeah. So. D- for those who are not familiar with yeah. you and your work, yeah. <laughs> you are someone who grew up in St. Louis, and I, I think that that's pertinent to our conversation, not just because we're St. Louis on the Absolutely. air, but because of you know, the way that the food scene has come to be recognized and has developed over time. So, I mean, how would you describe your connection to St. Louis through the, the food that is here? And uh, what other places that you've been? Yeah, St. Louis is St. <laughs> Louis is, and I've described it this way, and I find it wildly endearing um, for this reason. We are sort of disproportionately, inordinately obsessed with food in this town, and it is something that we do well, um, and it's sort of a you know a combination of intention when uh, chefs um, have come and obviously invested and, and, and the talent we, we, will, we will attract here. But it's also because we just have this great sort of influx of, of mixed immigration. Mm. And we have multi-generational families that are sort of continuing in, that, in, in their restaurant um, sort of family history. So it's a mix of, of multiple things that just really make us that really just set us up for being unique and and really a, a forward thinking food culture here, and we're open to trying new things, which is wonderful. I think we're small enough that we are a tight knit restaurant community. If you mention a restaurant, I can guarantee you the person you're talking to knows what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not such a large city that that's. Um, you know, places get lost in the cracks. Everyone knows when a new place opens. Um, everyone has their favorite places and they want to share about, you yeah. know, share stories about them. So, insofar as authenticity yeah. goes and what is expected of some yeah. and not others, yeah. you are a trained chef. I am. You went to the Culinary Institute of America. I did. Yeah. So, the French, like mm-hmm. that, is what you have done yeah. for a long time. But there are certain expectations that people may have. And you had shared an anecdote with me about that. Can you, can you talk about that sort of example of expectation? Sure, sure. Well, I am sort of a, a non-stereotypical St. Louisan, I think, in that I was, I was adopted from South Korea as a, a small child and was adopted by a very white family. <laughs> they were white through and through, Dutch, Irish, and, uh, and German. And so I grew up sort of with one foot in, you know, sort of an Asian community and one foot in this white community. But my upbringing was very much middle class, you know, a, a white middle class experience. Um, I grew up in University City because my parents decided to buy a home there because they thought it would be more diverse for me. So I definitely had mm. a, a diverse community, 
but I was still experiencing a lot of of just what it's like to be raised, yeah, as a white St. Louisan in, in that culture. But what I found out was as I got older, you know, when you look at me, none of that matters. Um, I represent very much uh, a Korean a Korean woman in, in the Korean community. So when I got to school, I remember in my Asian cookery class, my my chef um, asked me to, to make family meal and she wanted me to make Korean food. And you don't say no to chef, so I did. Um, and I, you know, those things would happen in life. Mm-hmm. But as an adult, after sort of having this career and establishing myself as you know a professional and and having bylines, I was still getting calls from editors asking me to write about Korean food because they thought I was an expert in Korean cuisine. When when that was a topic that I actually avoided writing mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. Um, and so it, there was a certain it almost it almost sort of fringed very close to fetishization mm-hmm. of of sort of making um, a story valid because of what I looked like, but not based on my experience. Yeah. We're talking today with Holly Fan, who is a St. Louis food writer and dining critic for St. Louis Magazine and Eater. She's also a trained chef who grew up here in St. Louis, just mentioned University City, and her TED St. Louis talk um, is why she's here. We're talking about that, about authenticity in food and what it is we miss when we buy into mm-hmm. the illusion of authentic food, not only what we're eating, but who is making it. So let's get to a bit of that TED talk. Um, there's a portion of that TEDx St. Louis talk where you expand upon uh, a guest that you call cocktail party guest. Yeah. This is kind of at the beginning. And then you introduce maybe his cousin or, or bro mm-hmm. even. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about a hole in the wall in the city. Yes. Now, describing what you did there is, doesn't quite do it justice. So let's listen to that part together. So I found this place that's supposed to have the best birria tacos in the city. And I went looking for it and I got lost and I was stuck in this neighborhood and I'm like, where am I? This is not safe. I don't know what's going on here. And then I find it. It's this total dump, man. It's this hole in the wall. Nobody knows about it. It's totally authentic. (laughs) When we went in, there was no one who spoke English. We were the only white people. It was awesome. And my tacos were only a buck fifty. Ethnic food is so cheap. This is great. Don't be that guy. <laughs> so there are a couple points of of laughter there. Sure, sure. You know, but then there's the birria tacos. Mm-hmm. That this is not safe. Mm-hmm. It's so cheap. It's all very current. Yes. Sadly, it's already classic. Right. That's what it felt like. Because of the reaction. Absolutely. And that is not, um, that's sort of a combination of of conversations that I have been involved in. But no part of that was was fictionalized. It was, those are all things that I've heard. And I've heard sort of the same, the same scenario and the same framework over and over again. And the reason that I, that I decided to sort of slip into that role uh, when I was doing my talk, I actually thought about maybe, you know, not being so 
forward uh, with that. And I thought actually about pulling it from the talk altogether. Mm. And I think when you hear that laughter, it gets it gets quiet for a second afterwards. And and I think it's because you know we're all a little bit guilty, some more than others. And people saw themselves in that. Yeah. And it's an uncomfortable feeling um, to sort of to sort of fear that you've you know you've maybe you you're sort of slipping into this this subjective idea of authenticity. But it needed to be that way because <laughs> we need we really need to reassess this. And I had so many people come up to me afterwards, and the first thing they did was almost sort of you know timidly apologize uh-huh. because they really saw themselves um, you know guilty of, of parts of of all of that and so it's I think it resonated with people even if they didn't necessarily want it to yeah yeah I mean yeah. what makes being that guy a bad thing well you know we when when I spoke about fetish you know fetishizing sort of my my ethnicity, um, and using that for using that for the advantage of a publication, rather than to speak of of my background or to add to my writer's voice or give it validity. Um, it was that is kind of a, a micro a microcosmic way to look at at the authenticity and and food problem. Um, we. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We tend to. Hmm, I'm trying to. I'm, try, I'm trying to be as 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 considerate, but also as straightforward. I don't want to be too straightforward right. about this, but I think I. I think I just have to. Yeah. If if we fetishize sort of the circumstances of an immigrant restaurant, a lot of them don't have have liquor licenses. A lot of them can only afford rent in, you know, in areas where first-generation immigrants are going to afford rent. The opportunity and the access they have is wildly different. Mm -hmm. Um, The experience that they have as a restaurant owner and an entrepreneur is wildly different. And the reason they are doing this is because they want to make you happy. They want to share the food that they feel proud of to make you happy. But instead of gauging our experience by the food, we started to gauge it by these, these, we started basically fetishize these very, you know, these very horrible stereotypes. They turned into stereotypes of, of, the, of just sort of the, the reality of what it's like to be an immigrant restaurant owner. Yeah. And that is not what we sh- that is not what we should be focusing on. We should not be focusing on the fact that it looks like a dump, if it looks like a dump. We should not be focusing on the fact that it's in a neighborhood that we we are unfamiliar with, and we should not be focusing, you know, on the fact that no one speaks English and that we are the only white people um, that that are so smart. You know, we have decided to to give our business to this place. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the candor, and I think this is this is yeah. necessary to this conversation. I think so too. Because if if we're not honest about it, if we're not being authentic mm-hmm. about it, yeah, then we're not really getting anywhere. Yeah. Um, and I will say that I have been that guy. Mm-hmm. I was that guy back in LA, mm-hmm. circa you know, like early two thousands, mm-hmm. and that 
I I admit it because I think it is something it's not merely about your anyone's being mm-hmm. in white St. Louisan. Absolutely. Because these attitudes are they're very pervasive. And it's it is complicated, right? It is very it, you that is a yes, that's it on the nose. The reason it is I think the reason I gave the talk and the reason it sort of slipped into having a life of its own is because it is complicated. I find myself, you know, if someone wants to tell me that they had this great experience at at a place that I think may be not a great representation of of a certain type of dish or a certain type of cuisine, I vacillate back and forth between using the word authentic now. Yeah. And and absolutely it it is not <laughs> it is not singular to, you know, to white or Caucasian, you know, diners, but it is not, um, it's shifting the focus from where it should be. It really is. And, and I think we're all sort of guilty of slipping into those, to those preconceived notions and attitudes. Mm -hmm. So overall, how have people responded to your TED talk? Has anyone said anything to you that made you think, if I could do this again, this is an element that I would include, even if it's just a line or two. Sure. I think, well, the response has been overwhelmingly, especially locally, wildly supportive. And a lot of people, um, you know, even people that I interact, like when, when we spoke earlier, it's they want very badly to give autonomy back to those restaurants. They mm-hmm. want to be a forward-thinking diner. And so they... They're very open to it. I did receive quite a few emails after it went on YouTube um, to my to my personal website, and and it it ranged. It went from you know if you don't if you don't like um, if you don't like America, you should you should go back to Korea. Um, I also had someone ask me you know what the do I know about birria tacos, which was very random and odd. Um, so there's there's definitely. There are people who feel passionate um, that that I treaded on some water that was not okay to tread on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in to talk about this. There's clearly a, a lot more that we can explore. Really appreciate your taking the time. Absolutely. This segment was produced by Elaine Cha. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.